Good evening to you. Happy Fourth of July. We don't have fireworks. We have something far better. What would you do if you discovered the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton ever known in the world? You call Socrates. <laughs> you might call your mom. Say, look what we found. But then you call Sotheby's, and whom would Sotheby's call? Shelby Kuyper. <laughs> Sotheby's has this uh, nefarious-sounding division called the Special Projects Department. Sounds a lot like the CIA to me, but it's all in a good cause. If you wanted to sell the O'Fallon collection of American Indian portraits by George Catlin, and you needed somebody to write the catalog, whom would you call? Call Selby Kiefer. And you get a gavel price of $17.4 million. And this past December, if you wanted to sell James Naismith, great relic of uh, American sports, his uh, founding rules of basketball. I don't know how many people saw that in New York since this past December. You call Selby Kuyper. Selby Kuyper is Sotheby's International Senior Specialist for Books and Manuscripts. And he has principal responsibility for historical American manuscripts, for travel and atlases, and for natural history books. His catalogs of some of the great private libraries H. Bradley Martin, Morris Neville, James Cosby, and others are a major scholarly contribution to book history and bibliography. One could teach an entire rare book school course almost exclusively out of Mr. Kiefer's catalog for the garden sale. Mr. Kiefer has researched and cataloged the most expensive letters ever sold at auction by Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and many other figures of American history, as well as cataloging for sale holograph stories by Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Truman Capote. His major discoveries of bibliographical treasures include, we may hear about this today, three previously unrecorded copies of the Dunlop broadside of the Declaration of Independence, a lost fragment of the autographed manuscript of Abraham Lincoln's 1858 House Divided speech, the first half of the autographed manuscript of Abraham Lincoln, uh, sorry, the first half of the autographed manuscript of the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and when you look at that on the Sotheby's website, it doesn't say the autographed manuscript, there's a typo that says, the autographed manuscript. That changes things rather a little bit, but it's the autographed manuscript. And four early notebooks of Walt Whitman that were lost for more than 50 years that have been in the possession of the Library of Congress. How does he do it? Well, I think I can reveal the secret. He's a graduate of the School of Library Service at Columbia University. <laughs> He's also a former Malkin lecturer at Rare Book School. Something of a T-Rex himself. <laughs> Sylvie Piper will speak to us on this 4th of July about printing the Declaration of Independence and selling it. We are delighted to have him with us. Citizens, the pursuit of happiness includes agreeing to attend a lecture on an evening of 
question I first thought, of course, was who canceled? <laughs> but maybe nobody, because nobody else wanted to be here on July 4th. But I'm sincerely happy to be here at Thomas Jefferson University on the 4th of July. I've been fortunate enough to work very closely with many iterations of the Declaration of Independence. I've been privileged to appraise two of the several holograph copies that Jefferson wrote out for friends. Uh, as Michael mentioned, uh, I've been involved in selling three copies of the Dunlap broadside and been involved in discovering two other unrecorded copies. Uh, neither of those have been sold. We are entirely mercenary in some of these. And I think I've played a, a larger role in the discovery and sale of more of the post-Dunlap of 1776 broadside attorneys to the Declaration of Independence than perhaps anyone else. You can't work at an auction house for 27 years, as I have, despite my experience, without <laughs> developing a healthy cynicism, particularly if you have a tendency in that direction naturally. So seeing another aphoristically inscribed first edition by Mark Twain, uh, or another little note by President Lincoln allowing a rebel soldier, you're allowed to say rebel in Virginia, uh, soldier to take the oath of December 8th and be paroled, or another unread, untouched, great Gatsby preserved as a fetish item in a Christine Dust jacket. Doesn't really excite you much anymore. Although, I'm always happy to see them coming in the door. If anyone here wants to talk about consigning any of these, I'll be available. But it's never less than thrilling for me to hold the 1776 printing of the Declaration of Independence and read the same words, not just the same text that you can get from in today's newspaper and textbook, but the same setting type on the same sheet of paper, half sheet of paper, that may have been read by someone during the foment of the revolution, maybe read by a local or state legislature, legislator, wondering if the Continental Congress had gone too far this time, maybe being read by a young man who's inspired to join his local militia, maybe being read by a loyalist wife and mother, wondering how this is going to impact her family. Uh, it takes you back to the immediacy of that time, uh, more viscerally than anything else I can think of. So to read those words, we all know when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station in which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation and to read Jefferson's charge of the reasons for the separation is always exciting for me. I don't think there's any room for argument that the Declaration of Independence is a central document in the history of the United States. And I think it's certainly the best known. More people on the street might be able to quote you the first few words from the Constitution, or maybe the Gettysburg Address, and other people might say the promise of the Declaration wasn't fulfilled until the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation in the 13th Amendment. But I think few people could offer any physical characteristics of any of the various iterations of those four documents. Whereas I think everyone carries with them some idea of the physical image of the Declaration. Really big, written on parchment or vellum or whatever it's called, and it has that group of signatures at the bottom. And Michael gave me a preview that looks like this. And if you write to the National Archives, as I did a few years ago, and ask them for an image of the Declaration of Independence, they will send you this, even though the Declaration that they have in their bulletproof and atmospherically controlled screen actually looks like this. And that's not just the quality of the image that I'm projecting. Uh, but neither of these is the real Declaration of Independence. Both of these are commemorative souvenirs. And I apply that even to this. The first version dates to 1823 and was commissioned by then Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. 
This declaration was engraved by William Stone, who printed 200 copies for distribution by the government. This first facsimile is easy to identify, or it should be easy, although a lot of people mix it up. In the upper corners, starting here, you can maybe just see a faint line of light, and ending here is the legend printed by order of the Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, by William J. Stone. By congressional resolve, these 200 copies were distributed to the surviving signers of the Declaration, to President Monroe, Vice President Tompkins, former President Madison, the Marquis de Lafayette got one, which was actually sold at auction about 25 years ago. The President's House, the Supreme Court, state and territory legislatures, state and uh, territory uh, universities selected by President Monroe and various executive departments. Once Stone had printed his 200 copies, he effaced that legend from the top. He added right here below George Walton's name a smaller legend. Uh, it essentially means the William J. Stone in Gray, Washington, and printed an unknown copy for his own account on paper. And from those derived all of the various legitimate and illegitimate reproductions and facsimiles that we see ever since, including the copies that uh, we were given today when we attended the naturalization ceremony at Monticello. Uh, those copies also account for about 5% of all inquiries to the Sunday's books and manuscripts department. <laughs> now, the point of all this, uh, which is an introduction despite its length, is not that the engrossed and signed copy of the Declaration is in such poor condition that the National Archives seeks to disguise it, although that might be true. And the point is not that the stone facsimile, the making of it, contributed to the deterioration of the original, although that may have had a role in it. I think it's actually just that the original was treated rather cavalierly. Right? It stayed in the files of Charles Thompson, who was the Secretary of Congress, and traveled with him and his successors as Congress moved from Philadelphia to Baltimore, New York, Lancaster, Princeton, Annapolis, Trenton, and New York. Uh, it then was casually moved from government building to government building in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1941, it hung in the patent office next to George Washington's commission as Commander-in-Chief. It returned to Philadelphia briefly in 1876 for six months during the centennial, and then it was hung uh, until Barry Truman moved it to the Library of Congress in 1852 in the State War and Navy building, supposedly for four decades, partly next to an open fireplace. So I take William Stone off the hook for the way this looks today. Now, my point is that even this, the authentic, calligraphic, engrossed copy of vellum signed by the 56 signers of the Declaration, is simply an official commemorative. It's a secondary production. On July 19, 1776, the delegates of the Continental Congress adopted a resolution ordering that the Declaration passed on the fourth be fairly engrossed on parchment with the title and style of the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, and that the same when engrossed be signed by every member of Congress. One incentive for the concept of the calligraphic copy may have been the belated endorsement of independence by the New York delegation. During the debates of Independence Week, the delegates from New York were waiving their instructions from the New York Convention and claimed that they didn't have the power to vote yes or no on independence. They wrote to the Provincial Congress for instruction, but the response was delayed because the Provincial Congress was in the process of moving from New York City to White Plains because the British were coming, and so they didn't get their instructions in time. Timothy Matlack, one of Thompson's clerks working for the uh, Continental Congress, was given the task of transcribing the text. And what was Matlack using as a copy text? the Dunlap Broadside, the real Declaration of Independence, set in type the evening of July 4th and into the morning of July 5th by John Dunlap, 
and known by its printer's name and its format being printed on one side only in a single sheet of paper as the Dunlap broadside. MATLAB's transcription took much longer to produce uh, than this, which was done overnight. It took almost as long as it took uh, Thomas Jefferson to write with the assistance, or as he would probably put it, interference of other delegates, the original text. Uh, MATLAB was given his charge on the 19th of July, and it wasn't until the 2nd of August that the journals of Congress recorded that the Declaration of Independence, being engrossed and compared at the table, was signed by its members. Not July 4th, but the 2nd of August. That chronology seems pretty straightforward. So why do so many people, including some of the speakers today at Monticello, continue to believe that the Declaration of Independence was signed on the 4th of July? To be fair, this tradition is founded on the published memoirs of two seemingly unimpeachable sources, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> In a letter to Mercy Warren, Adams stated, quote, and I'm not going to say quote every time I get a quote, the final vote of independence after the last debate was passed on the 2nd or 3rd of July and the declaration prepared and signed on the 4th. Close quote. And in the memorandum that Jefferson later drafted about the independence proceedings, he stated that on the evening of July 4th, quote, the declaration was reported by the committee, agreed to by the House, and signed by every member present except Mr. John Dickinson, close quote, of Pennsylvania. In fact, Adams and Jefferson, several decades later, had conflated a month-long series of events into just two or three days. Historians, actually led by the pioneer and collectors of the signatures of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, did not begin to understand the true chronology of the genesis of the Declaration until the secret journals of Congress were published in 1923. A secret journal was necessary because Congress was going to be treason, and they didn't necessarily want everyone to know what they were doing until it turned out that the citizens accepted this and rallied behind it. They could have easily gotten it and crumpled it up and thrown it away. So these secret journals weren't published until 1823, by which time the traditional stories told by Jefferson and Adams had already taken hold. So what's the true chronology? We know that the text of the Declaration of Independence, which announced and justified America's Resolution of Separation from Great Britain was first printed on the night of July 4th, as we've said. But when the Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia in May of that year, the issuance of such a declaration was not, by any means, a foregone conclusion. A coalition of delegates from mid-Atlantic states, led by Pennsylvania's and later Delaware's John Dickinson, advocated a cautious approach and made even harder hopes for an equitable reconciliation with Great Britain. The first step towards the Declaration was Virginia Delegate Richard Henry Lee's resolution of the 7th of June that these United States are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And this statement will sound familiar to you because it was appropriated whole by Jefferson into the final paragraph of the Declaration. Uh, but even so, Lee's resolution provoked sharp debate. South Carolinian Edward Rutledge wrote to John Jay that the sensible part of the House opposed the motion. They saw no wisdom in the Declaration of Independence nor any other purpose to be answered by it, replacing ourselves in the power of those with whom we need to treat. The firebrands like John Adams held the day. And on the 11th of June, Continental Congress appointed a committee of five members to draft the declaration endorsing Lee's resolution. The members were Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert R. Livingston of New York. Jefferson had come to the notice of many of the other delegates through his 1774 pamphlet, A Summary View of the Rights of British America. 
and he was chosen to write the declaration in recognition of what John Adams called his peculiar felicity of expression. His extensively reworked rough draft, as it's commonly known, is preserved in the Jefferson Papers at the Library of Congress. In addition to Lee's resolution, Jefferson drew heavily on two other fundamental sources for the Declaration. George Mason's Bill of Rights, adopted by Virginia on the 12th of June, 1776, and his own draft of a proposed <coughs> constitution for his home state. Jefferson felt great satisfaction for the rest of his life in having been privileged to serve as the chief author of the Declaration. Shortly before his death, Jefferson wrote to Richard Henry Lee, responding to the remarks of John Adams and others, that the Declaration only stated what everyone at the time believed. He had been concerned, Jefferson wrote, not to find out new principles and new arguments, never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never before been said, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent. It was intended to be an expression of the American mind. As evident from the annotations on the rough draft, Adams and Franklin actually read and commented on Jefferson's version, making relatively small changes. There's no evidence that either Sherman or Livingston did make any suggestions or, frankly, even read it. A now lost fair copy that incorporated Franklin and Adams' suggestions was submitted to the full body of the Continental Congress, which debated it for three days before approving it on the 4th of July. The most substantial modification made in congressional discussions was that the final point of Jefferson's charge against the British king, that, quote, of violating the most sacred rights of life and liberty by encouraging the slave trade, close quote, was struck out. Jefferson, and by the way, Jefferson's own holograph copies that I mentioned that he made for some friends, put that back in. Uh, Jefferson's own notes made at the time of the debate state that this was done uh, in deference to South Carolina and Georgia, who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves and who, on the contrary, still wished to continue. With that major, major change, Congress adopted the declaration and authorized its printing, resolving that the committee, that is the same five members, appointed to prepare the declaration, superintend, and correct the press. That evening, July 4th, the manuscript copy of the declaration, evidently bearing the authorizing signature of John Hancock, President of Congress, who is the only name that appears here besides Charles Thompson, the Secretary, although inevitably he shows up on some of the subsequent printings as Charles Thompson, as he still does in Oxford catalogs once in a while. He was taken to the shop of John Dunlap, which was a short walk away at the corner of High Street and Market Street. In 1757, Dunlap had come to America from Ireland as a ten-year-old apprentice to his uncle, William, who was a printer. Uh, by the time he was 19, John Dunlap was running the shop. His uncle had gone back uh, to England uh, to take ecclesiastical uh, In 1771, Dunlap started the Pennsylvania Packing in general, eventually become the daily advertiser, which he quickly established as one of Pennsylvania's and Philadelphia's leading newspapers. Dunlap's work on the Declaration led to his de facto appointment as the official printer of the Continental Congress. He also did work for the Pennsylvania Assembly and followed both bodies to Lancaster in the British occupied Philadelphia. He took over the printing of the Journals of Congress from Robert Aitken, but he lost that commission in 1779, ostensibly because of his too slow work and too high fees. But in actuality, likely because the Pennsylvania packet printed a pseudonymous letter by Thomas Paine, not a particularly good pseudonym that was signed common sense, <laughs> that revealed that the secret aid that America had already been receiving from France prior to the official announcement of the Franco-American alliance. This indiscretion was eventually forgiven, and 11 years after he printed the declaration, Dunlap's press would issue the first printing of the United States Constitution. Excuse me.
Dunlap spent the evening of the 4th of July setting the declaration in type. The last sentence of the broadside includes the phrase with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, which was not mentioned in the debates in Congress and may have been an emendation made actually at the shop by the committee. That's its first appearance. Uh, the printer took at least one proof, a fragment of which uh, survives at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. It varies chiefly from the finished copies of putting many phrases within quotation marks, such as uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Once the quotation marks were taken out, Dunlap did not re-justify the text. And so I realize this is not the greatest reproduction, but you can see uh, even in the paragraph here, unusually wide gaps between words where there once were quotation marks. But in the rush to get the job done and have the news hit the street, he didn't bother to uh, re-justify. Finished copies were pulled and delivered to Congress the morning of July 5th, and the process of distribution began immediately. Dunlop's elegant broadside is the original and official instrument by which America's resolution of independence was made known to our citizens and to the world at large. Three of the surviving copies today are in the archives of the, uh, the nation of Great Britain. On the part of the resolution of the 4th of July, ordered that copies of the declaration be sent to the several assemblies, conventions, and committees or councils of safety, to the several commanding officers of continental troops, that it be proclaimed in each of the United States and at the head of the order. It was a Dunlap broadside that George Washington received in New York and had read to his troops headquartered there on the 9th of July. The size of the addition of the Dunlap broadside is unknown, uh, but I think it's almost certainly printed in substantial numbers. Uh, various evidence makes me think that the addition must have been between 700 and 1,000 copies. Although the first time I sold one, we said in the catalog probably about 200. And I'm annoyed to see in Wikipedia and almost everywhere you look, it says the edition was probably about 200. And I want to say, no, no, I've changed my mind. It's much bigger. <laughs> well, why do I think it was much bigger? Uh, first, a relatively large number of copies are known to survive, including fragmentary copies, 26 are known, uh, two or well, precisely one and three quarters are right here at the University of Virginia. And it's more likely than not, I think, that others could surface. Uh, an elaborate census undertaken by the Library of Congress during the bicentennial found 21 copies. So an additional copy has been found on average about every seven years, but to be honest about it, only one has turned up since 1991. And that was a, the third copy found in the British Army. The copy currently on the screen is one of the relatively recent purchase, uh, discoveries in one of the finest examples known. It was purchased inadvertently, one might say, and some of you probably heard this uh, story, maybe even wondered about it, at a uh, flea market outside of Philadelphia, probably Renier's, by a collector not of American manuscripts, but of ephemera. And he purchased a painting, not because he liked the painting, because it was in rather poor condition, but he liked the frame. And so he thought this would be something nice if I could put some of my menus in and other printed ephemera. He took it home, discards the painting, or frames the, the painting so he can rework with the frame, and folded uh, behind the uh, canvas and the backing the Declaration of Independence. He didn't go running to Sotheby's or to anywhere else. He didn't think it was real. Uh, but he was enough of a collector, and people in this room will appreciate this. He also didn't throw it out. He, <laughs> he kept it. And a couple of years later, a friend of his, also a collector, saw it in his basement and he said, what is this? You should have something to look at. So still thinking that maybe it was uh, Centennial reproduction. He took it to a library in Philadelphia. Uh, the librarian there told him he thought it was probably right. 
and uh, I shouldn't say this, I was going to say probably made a pitch for a donation. <laughs> That's speculative on my part. But told him other avenues he might pursue. And uh, a colleague of mine, David Ray, and I went down uh, to Philadelphia to meet the man. Uh, he still had the declaration folded as he had found it in the breast pocket of his jacket. Uh, he took it out. We realized that it was right. Uh, we ended up offering it for sale in June of 1991 when it sold for $2,420,000. Uh, we resold this copy again in 2001. When I say 2001 the first time, we sold it in June 1991. We resold it in 2001 for $8,140,000. It was purchased by the television producer Norman Lear, who has been touring it around the country with the object of having it visit all 50 states. The underbidder, that all-important underbidder, the disappointed underbidder, is the same entity in both <laughs> Another copy added since the bicentennial census turned up in the attic of the lab Gilman House, the meeting house of the New Hampshire Society of Cincinnati. And uh, my colleagues and I authenticated and appraised that copy in 1988. One of the interesting points about that copy is the annotation on the versa identifying the content and the data reception. About half of the surviving Dunlap broadsides have endorsements or dockets on the back, usually something as simple as Declaration of Independence, because this is a large document, about 14 by 18. You can fold it up and put it in your desk, and so that you wouldn't have to unfold it to see what it was, you would write what it was. The, this copy actually is endorsed on the back American Declaration of Independence, which has led to some speculation that maybe it was initially in British hands. Now, the authors of these endorsements can rarely be identified, uh, but the docket on the copy found in New Hampshire is arguably in the hand of the clerk of the 1776 New Hampshire Senate. And the credit, or depending on your perspective, the blame for that goes to my former colleague, Mary Jo Klein, who's here this evening, for identifying that. Uh, therefore, although the New Hampshire Society of Cincinnati, in whose building the broadside was discovered, was keen to offer an auction, and to be Sotheby's was keen to offer the auction as well. That copy is now identified as being in the custody of the New Hampshire Society of Cincinnati as provided in a special agreement with the state of New Hampshire. If there's any law librarians here, I'll let you figure out what that means. Uh, but for those of you who maybe mistrust the free market provenance of the Norman Lear copy, the New Hampshire copy was found underneath the attic floor of the Black Building House, together with all manner of old cloth and other old paper where it had been jammed as insulation. So they do turn up in odd places. <laughs> Another of the copies that we can add to the census was discovered or rediscovered as a direct result of our sale of this copy in 1991. We printed in our catalog an updated census from the Bicentennial, which then counted 24 copies. And after reading this, a client of mine from Portland, Maine, called me and said, well, you know, the Maine Historical Society has a great Dunlap. You should add that to your census. Well, of course, I wanted to do that, and this was somebody uh, who was knowledgeable and who I trusted. Uh, so I called the Maine Historical Society. Uh, and I spoke with three separate librarians and curators, and as if I had been speaking with Peter from them, I got three denials. So our, I don't like all of these things. So our census stated 24 copies and not 25. Well, the flea market copy was sold on the 13th of June for almost two and a half million dollars, and on the 14th of June, Maine Historical Society a news conference at which it announced that it had just uncovered a sparkling Dunlap Moss sign, which had been bequeathed to it by John S. H. Fogg in 1893. 
curiously, there's no record of a public sale or a sale of any kind, so far as I can tell, of a Dunlap before May 1969. What a copy discovered the previous year in the stock of Leary's bookstore, but in a crate that had supposedly been sealed since 1911, was sold in Philadelphia by the auction firm of Freeman's. After one of the few auction battles at which he must have been brought, uh, bridesmaid, not broadside, bridesmaid, <laughs> Hans Krauss yielded to two Texas businessmen who were determined to take the declaration home with them in Alice, where it remains, the only copy actually west of the Mississippi River. The price, remember this is 1969, was a colossal $404,000. With that in perspective, uh, I think the best measure of the staggering level of that price is that in 1982, when Christie's, that would have been timely to have a clap of thunder. <laughs> <laughs> when Christie's offered the very fine Chu family copy, it sold for $275,000, significantly less, more than a decade later. It's now at the Pierpont Morgan Library. And the next year, Christie's had another unusually fresh and previously unknown copy, which was further distinguished by being endorsed by Joseph Hughes, the signer of the Declaration of Independence from North Carolina. That copy achieved $375,000 and is now at Williams College. The 1969 price for the Leary Bookstore Declaration was not eclipsed, in fact, until 1990, when we sold since I said Christie's, I should say, and the Sotheby's sold the Bradley Martin copy for $1,650,000. Since Martin, no copy has been sold for less than its predecessor has made. And I have no doubt that with $8,140,000 achieved by this copy in 2001, it would be easily eclipsed with a copy of similar and even lesser quality paid Martin. Now the Martin copy, by the way, was purchased by Albert Small, who included it in his gift to the university, and it's on view. I'm not quite sure, maybe over that. But back to the number of copies that might have been printed. Uh, we know the attrition rate for broadsides is very high. So 26 survivors must represent a relatively large initial group. For instance, the second official declaration of independence uh, printed after Dunlap's, was printed in New York by John Holt on July 9th. Uh, we also know from an endorsement on the copy of this in the Huntington Library, this is actually from the New York Historical Society, this, uh, this copy that I'm showing, that the New York Committee of Safety meeting in White Plains ordered that 500 copies of the Declaration be printed in handbills to be sent to all the county committees in this state. Of those 500, three are known to survive. So again, 26 is a very large survival. Interestingly, this is a common pattern. As Dunlap's broadsiders raced throughout the colonies, local printers produced their own versions in broadside or newspaper form, sometimes as a result of a local government decree, sometimes as a money-making proposition. But all of the subsequent 1776 printings are much scarcer than Dunlap's. Uh, so maybe the edition was even larger than I'm suspecting, or maybe even somehow in 1776 uh, the significance and primacy of the Dunlap broadside was recognized and a particular effort was made to preserve it. Uh, the final evidence for a large print run is that Dunlap was using four stocks of Dutch paper. And it's clear that he wasn't sort of grabbing them at random, but working through them serially, finishing one stock before he moved on to the next. And we know that because of the minute change in the imprint line, uh, which would be tough to see, but Philadelphia printed by John Dunlap in this first state, the P of Philadelphia falls under the comma after Thompson's name. Sometime during the course of the evening of printing, that line shifted to the left, and the P of Philadelphia ends up exactly centered under the end of Thompson. And that's the state that the Bradley Martin Robert Small 
pop is in. So for the paper stocks, the proof copy, which you've heard me tell this group would have been the first one, or one of the first ones printed, and five others are watermarked with the initials AR and HR, and they all have the first date of the imprint. Then there's another stock, which was evidently a small uh, group to begin with, known by just two copies, watermarked with the manufacturer's name DNC Black. Again, both of those copies are in this first state. The most common stock isn't watermarked at all. There are 11 copies, 10 of which are in the first state, one of which shows the second state. So that's the transitional stock. And then the last paper, the last unlike used, that is, is watermarked with the name of Honigan Zuni. All five copies known on that stock have the second state. Now, if you've been counting up, that's only 22 copies, but four of the fragmentary copies don't have their input. In fact, some of them are literally only a quarter of the surviving declaration. But however many copies were printed, uh, the Dunlop broadside did not entirely fulfill the intense demand of tens of thousands of Americans for copies of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Dunlops were used as copy texts, as I mentioned, throughout the colonies. Uh, including the Dunlap, 13 broadside editions of the Declaration of Independence were printed during July and August of 1776. None were printed later than that, that we can tell. Broadside editions were printed in Pennsylvania, New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Five of the broadside editions don't carry the imprint, but it's likely that they were also produced within those six states. At the same time, the Declaration is being reprinted in many regional newspapers, appearing first in the Pennsylvania Evening Post on the 6th of July, and subsequently in 30 newspapers around the country before the end of the month. Newspaper printings, uh, the Declaration appeared in newspapers in three states that did not issue a broadside edition, and perhaps that's why, Maryland, Connecticut, and Virginia. So I'd like to make a quick survey of some of these other contemporary printings of the Declaration, uh, noting when applicable their auction sales. Much of what I will talk about represents some of these ongoing revision and modification of Michael Walsh's pioneering study, Contemporary Broadside Editions of the Declaration of Independence, which was published in the Harvard Library Bulletin in 1949. And we began this revision in 1993. Uh, since Walsh published his list, several more contemporary printings have come to light. In addition, Walsh somewhat confusingly assigned separate numbers uh, to variant issues in states, so one of only single editions. One of his entries is a ghost, and two of his entries really don't fit in what we're trying to talk about. Uh, one is a unique copy of a vellum printed by Dunlap, almost certainly long after the event is commemorative. Uh, that's his number two, and Walsh number 17 was likely printed in London, so we believe that. So when I refer to the 12th contemporary broadside, I'm talking about Sotheby's number 12, not Michael Walsh's number 12. And while the numbers are largely chronological, they don't necessarily indicate a strict order of precedence. So it would be a little surprise that the first printing in the newspaper, the Declaration is in Philadelphia. Uh, this is a fresh copy uh, from the Pennsylvania Evening Post that was part of the bound run of the paper that was printed by Benjamin Town, uh, running from the 2nd of March to the 10th of September, 1776. And we sold that set all the way back in 1993 for $123,000. A little more recently, in June 2007, a disbound copy this paper alone, granted the most important and most valuable that you can imagine there's lots of other great information, contemporary reports uh, in that one, sold for $330,000. And as logical as it is that the first newspaper printing would have appeared in Philadelphia, it seems just as unlikely that the second broadside edition would also be in Philadelphia when Dunlap's edition was presumably blanketing the city. But there were patriots 
literate patriots who couldn't read the Latin version. And so the second edition was printed in German. Uh, this wonderful printing was unknown until about 25 years ago when a copy was discovered in the library at Gettysburg College. Uh, this copy, which is so far only the second to come to light, was sold by us in 1992, also for $330,000. The printers, Melchior Steiner and Charles Sis, were ardent patriots. They were friends of Dunlap. Uh, they issued other revolutionary texts in German, such as Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And while in two columns, you can see the headlines, I think, are clearly modeled after Dunlap as a copy text with the uh, breaks, the text of the, the breaks is exactly the same as this. And this is one of my favorite printings, and the fact that it's in a foreign language or something very American. <laughs> uh, this copy is no longer in America. Uh, I was going to say it was repatriated, but it was never interviewed. It was patriated by the Deutsche Historische Museum from Hans P. Krauss, who bought it from us uh, in that 1992 sale. I've already mentioned John Holt's uh, broadside, which was printed by order of the New York Assembly. As far as I know, none of the three copies of this version have been sold since Henry Huntington acquired his. And that was before even I was involved in that. I don't know why I don't have an image of the fourth declaration, which was also printed in New York, uh, this time by Hugh Hayne. Only two copies are known, but one of them came is here in a small collection. So I was hoping that I'd get an image of it before I left UVA. Uh, the fifth broadside is a little bit more mysterious. It was printed in New York as well. It carries no imprint, one of five contemporary copies without one, and it's known only by one copy, which is in the New York Historical Society. Uh, we designate it to New York because of the endorsement line. The sixth broadside was also printed without an imprint, which you'll see, although Hancock and Thompson's name appear on it. But based on its height, it's been assigned to Samuel Loudon in New York probably printed about July 15th or 20th. There are two surviving copies of this, the Library of Congress and, you guessed it, a small collection. They were both found about 70 miles north of New York City. In September 1776, Samuel Loudon, the supposed printer of this, uh, was a newspaper printer, printed the New York Packet and American Advertiser, and again, often printed patriotic and revolutionary texts, fled the city uh, and reestablished himself at Fishkin. So it seems likely that he took his remaining stock of broadside declarations with him, where two survived to be discovered a couple of centuries later. This example was sold at the same 1992 auction as the Steiner Assist broadside made $88,000, which I suppose at the time seemed like a lot of money. But uh, we'd certainly like to have that. The seventh broadside, uh, which I don't have because of my own error, is a virtual line-by-line -line reprinting. Uh, the closest copy of the Dunlap, and it was done by uh, Solomon Southern in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, unlike any other of the contemporary printings, including those with an imprint, Southern dated, but inevitably he misdated. So it reads June 13, 1776, instead of July 1776. Uh, the last example that came up for sale will be sold in 2002 for $365,000. Give you an idea of the progression of prices. We had a copy in 1990, which sold for $88,000. The eighth Broadside edition was the first to be printed in Boston, and it was issued as a joint uh, venture by the two printers working in town that July. John Gill, who was a newspaper publisher, and the team of Powers and Willis, who were also newspaper publishers. And they each printed the Declaration of Independence in their respective newspapers on the 18th of July. And so we speculate that this uh, printing 
that dates from about the same time, the 18th of July. Uh, the copy shown was sold at Boston by Skinner's, for whose courtesy I have this slide, in 2007 for $700,000. Boston might have been a good place to sell it since it's the uh, Boston printing. Uh, but again, another example of how prices have changed. We had a copy in 1990. In fairness, it was printed off about here, so the imprint was lacking, uh, and it sold for $93,000. Uh, like number five, number nine, virtually nothing is known about it. It has no imprint and survives in a single copy of the Boston, Boston Public Library. Excuse me. The next two broadsides in the chronology were printed in the same town, Salem, Massachusetts, on the same press, but not necessarily by the same printer, within a day or two of each other. And you can see this is another broadside that followed Dunlap's layout very, very close. If it weren't for this attestation, it would be to hit. It's very, very similar, uh, with the exception that Trump's is saying it's under 10 props instead of over here. Uh, the broadside, traditionally given the 11th spot, is the official Salem edition printed by Ezekiel Russell, the one that we're looking at now. Uh, the final paragraph reads, ordered that the Declaration of Independence be printed and a copy sent to the ministers of each parish of every denomination within the state, and that they be severally required to read the same to their respective congregations as soon as divine service is ended in the afternoon on the first Lord's Day after they shall have received it. Just pardon me. They'll read it after the end of divine services, so they're already separating church and state. And that such publication thereof and pardon me, and after such publication thereof, to deliver the said declaration to the clerks of their several towns or districts who are hereby required to record the same in their respective town or district books, there to remain as a perpetual memorial thereof. This official edition follows the Dunlop very closely, as I said, and another similarity to the Dunlap, which is relatively common. There are 19 copies of this version of which next to Dunlap is far and away the most. Uh, a copy of this was included in the very first sale I participated in at auction, which was on Halloween 1984. <laughs> and it sold for $15,400. 20 years later, I had another copy, the one shown here, and it sold for $475,000. Because of the admonition at the end, uh, this has become a problematic broadside for private collectors uh, because sometimes a particular town, uh, depending on how precise a docket or endorsement is, will say, well, that is ours and it should have gone into our town records in perpetuity. Um, and I'm aware of two cases that have gone to court, in one the town one and one the private collector one. Uh, it should be noted, and I got a little out of the way, that one of the 19 copies of this broadside in the Massachusetts Historical Society is a variant issue. And I'm indebted to Jeremy Bell, who provided me with this image just this afternoon when I was lamenting that I didn't get one from him when he was still at Mass Historical. And he said, Oh, you won't. Uh, this is the same broadside. The heading headline has been shifted to the right, and two rather crude uh, portraits have been added. Uh, so crude, I don't know that we can identify them beyond saying uh, they're patriots. <laughs> and then added at the end is this expanded imprint, which is order. Salem, Massachusetts Bay, printed by E. Russell by order of authority, sold at the printing house, upper end of Main Street. For all friends to the liberties of America who are inclined to purchase the above declaration to preserve in their houses to futurity, they be supplied very cheap, either by wholesale or retail. Well, I'm going to come back to that. The other 
Salem printing is much scarcer. Only six copies are known. It's the only contemporary broadside set in four columns, and it's one of the five uh, editions printed without an imprint. This was not issued unlike the Ezekiel Russell, which was his first uh, issue by government decree, but by a printer hoping to supply public demand. This, in fact, might be the very earliest printing of the Declaration in Massachusetts. The Declaration had been fought with when it first printed in Massachusetts on the 16th of July in the fifth issue of the short-lived newspaper, the American Gazette or Constitutional Journal. The American Gazette was the only newspaper that operated in Salem and one of only five being published in Massachusetts. We've already talked about the two papers being printed in Boston. The American Gazette was printed by John Rogers at the printing house of Ezekiel Russell. He was shooting this version. In addition to printing the weekly newspaper, Russell was also the official printer for the colony of Massachusetts, and in that capacity, he printed this official broadside. On first glance, these don't look very similar. But on the basis of the, uh, the actually, let me go on and I lost my spot there a minute. Um, besides the variation in the number of columns, there are also spelling differences. Uh, Rogers uses the spelling with an X in the word connection and connections, and Russell uses CT, as we do today, in connection with connection. But because the headlines, are relatively similar and seem to be from the same type, this anonymously printed broadside has been traditionally ascribed to Ezekiel Russell, beginning with Michael Walsh's 1949 uh, study of contemporary broadside editions. But you know, why would Russell print to <coughs> such different broadsides? Until we sold this copy just last June from the James S. Copy Library, no one had recognized that it was printed from the exact setting of type used for the printing of the Declaration in the 16 July issue of the American Gazette. The text of the Gazette occupies the first three columns on the first page and the fourth and part of the fifth column on the fourth page. The type is then reimposed in broadsheet form from folio and shifted to fit into four columns set with new title headlines, an attestation, but otherwise the text of the two printings is identical, printed line by line from the same setting of type. The only variation from the two, and finally a slide you can read, is that the final 14 words of the final sentence of the penultimate paragraph occupies two type lines in the newspaper printing, from them to Frank's, and three rather loose lines in the broadside print with French carried over to the third. Uh, I think this alteration argues for the broadside having been printed first, with lines then being tightened in order for the text of the declaration to fit in with the other news. And you saw there was other news that night. Had the newspaper been printed first, I don't see why this line would have been loosened in the broadside when there are many other lines throughout Nancy here necessarily that are nearly as tight. And if this edition was printed by John Rogers and not by Ezekiel Russell, then we know why Russell, after printing the official copy, printed this copy that he was happy to sell to people by retail or wholesale. Um, something he would have been unlikely to do if he was only selling the property from the other unofficial version. Uh, so these competing Salem broadsides might be part of the reason why the American Gazette and the Rogers-Russell partnership only lasted the many two issues. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, that detective work on the origin of printing had anything to do with the selling price or added to it, uh, but this copy sold in June, means this copy, for $572,000. Another Massachusetts broadside, uh, Massachusetts with New York has the poll to the most 
printed since 1776, was likely printed in Exeter by Robert Fowle. Again, you see there's no imprint. Eight copies of this are recorded, two of which have been sold at auction. The first was by Sotheby's, even before I joined, in 1978 for $9,500. Uh, second by Sotheby's in 2000 for $385,000. The final broadside printing of the Declaration is another of my favorites. It's an apparently unique copy uh, printed in Charleston by Timothy Peter sometime after the 2nd of August, 1776. After the 2nd of August, because we know that's when a copy of the Dunlap arrived in Charleston. This copy survived in the Charleston family, uh, and the edition was unknown until based on a photograph I went down to South Carolina to look at it in the summer of 1991. I authenticated it, evaluated it, uh, reached an agreement with the owner, and brought it back to me, brought it back with me to New York, uh, together with a catfish that I caught in an inlet. I just about got the catfish into the kitchen door before my wife instructed me to take it outside. <laughs> uh, this copy, the only one known, was sold in December 1999 for $297,000 and is now in the Gilbert Railroad Collection, which is currently, but maybe not perpetually, at the New York Historical Society. And finally, I should mention a, an addendum printing, a broadside, not done in 1776 but in January of 1777, and the only broadside besides Dunlap that was printed by order of the Federal Congress, or the National Congress, I should say. Also the only one printed by a woman that we know of would be one of those five having been printed. It's printed by a woman, a Mary Catherine Bonner. Uh, you'll notice also this difference in that it has listed by state the signers of the Declaration of Independence. When this copy was printed, it was distributed to the states with this admonition from John Hancock. Ten of these, by the way, are known to survive. None that I'm aware of have been sold at auction at least any time recently. Uh, this uh, image was provided to us by the New York Public Library. As there is not a more distinguished event in the history of America than the Declaration of Our Independence, nor any that in all probability will so much excite the attention of future ages, it is highly proper that the memory of that transaction, together with the causes that gave rise to it, should be preserved in the most careful manner that can be devised. I am therefore commanded by Congress to transmit you the enclosed copy of the Act of Independence with the list of the several members of Congress subscribed thereto and to request that you will cause the same to be put upon record that it may henceforth form a part of the archives of your state and remain a lasting testimony of your approbation of that necessary and important measure. So, in his reference to the list of several members of Congress subscribed there too, this Hancock now giving precedence to the engrossed in signed declaration. Let's examine the signers for a moment. Just for a moment, uh, this could be that I promise you it won't be the whole entire second lecture. Uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the distinction between the vote on declaration, the vote printed declaration on July 4th, which led to the Dunlap broadside, and the signing ceremony, which occurred a month later. This month long gap had some curious consequences in determining who signed the Ingrose Declaration and when. First, there were apparently four voters on the Declaration on the 4th of July who never signed the manuscript copy. Second, there were 12 delegates who signed the parchment but who did not cast a ballot on July 4th. Either because they were temporarily absent from Congress or because they had not yet taken or even been appointed to their seats. Third, like the rest of the delegation, the four eventual signers from New York did not vote on the adoption of the Declaration of Independence since they had withdrawn to await instruction from the New York Convention. Fourth, not all 56 signatures were subscribed on the 2nd of August, though all the members in attendance on that day evidently did have a single signing ceremony. Probably nine signatures were added later, a couple much later. In fact, if you look at the roster of names, and while I realize you probably can't read them, 
you'll see them separately. Uh, there are 56 sites, as we all know, counting Hancock as president, although it wasn't actually relevant. But there are only 55 names on Congress' quad site. Thomas McCain of Delaware was in Congress on July 2nd, 1776, and voted for separation from Great Britain. He was in Congress on July 4th, 1776, and voted with his fellow Delawarean Caesar Rodney, who wrote back to vote on independence, not to sign the declaration on the 4th of July. But he was absent from Congress for the next several months because he was serving with General Washington in the field. And we have by his own word that he did not sign until 1781 the declaration that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams recalled him signing on the 4th of July. <laughs> Goddard's broadside reflects the same number of signers that had been in Gordon's copy. McCain's name is absent. So with all respect to John Hancock, when I reflect that there's not a more distinguished event in the history of America than the declaration of her independence, I will always have in mind not the signed manuscript, but the Dunlap Cross. Thank you. Thank you so much.